Welcome to the Shigon Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Fry. Today I have a very special guest. My roommate from the Tulsa Drillers 1991 is going to be our guest today. I'm going to bring him on after I throw it back to our producer, Dave D'Agostino, for a few words. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Uh, glad to have this guest on today. We had, a, we had a ton of good conversations yesterday and even before the show today, so can't wait for the dialogue. I want to thank our uh, couple sponsors, Jaw Bats. Uh, great maple bats. I think my son Tanner's using the M110. Jeff, you're using what, the C271? Yes, sir. C271 3330. 3330. Got a double during the uh, fantasy camp. So uh, great bats. Use She Gone at checkout. It'll get you a discount on the bats or any of their merchandise. Also want to uh, kind of prelude a sponsorship. We've got bow nets that are involved with us now and kinetic arm. Uh, great training device for for shoulders. Jeff used it down in spring tr- or uh, fantasy camp as well to throw BP. And uh, I'm going to recommend them highly. We're going to do some events coming up in the near future with them. And want to thank Millions, our new marketing partner. The merchandise dropped yesterday. Uh, you can hear excerpts from our podcast on their platform as well. And we'll be starting to run events in March, uh, not just team events with all of our podcast hosts, uh, large events with up to a thousand participants. We're also going to have individual experiences where you can ask questions to our hosts and, uh, and they'll, they'll reply back to you 15, 20 second answers. So we'll get all that information to you as an audience later this week. But with that, Jeff, I'll throw it back to you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And my our guest today is, uh, is one of my best friends in the world. And he was drafted the fifth round 1985 MLB draft by the Chicago Cubs at a Wichita state grew up in Tulsa, still lives in Tulsa. We reconnected. We'll have to tell that story. Uh, during the podcast, we reconnected after about 20 years for some reason. We really weren't in touch, but uh, very thankful that we are uh, back connected and doing things together. But I'd like to welcome uh, my good friend, Rick Ricky Rowe, Rick Rona, to the podcast. What's up, Rowe? Hey, fellas. What's going on? Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, I know you, uh, what, two and a half, three weeks ago, you had a uh, knee replacement. That sounds like uh, we talked yesterday. It doesn't sound like it's a whole lot of fun. No, it's uh, it's it's very agonizing, but I needed it. I put it off for three years. I had my left one done exactly three years ago, and uh, it's tough. It's tough on you mentally and physically, and uh, my right one needed it, but I could afford to put it off for a couple of years. You know, I've been playing a lot of golf. I can still walk 18 holes easily, but afterwards, it's stiff, but it needed to be done, and I got tired of putting it off, and my doctor, uh, a good friend of mine, said, hey, I'm, I'm done doing these after – you know, the first of January. So if you want me to do it, you know, let's go. So, uh, made the appointment and he cut on me. Uh, uh, actually I had a, a bad tooth, so I had to put it off three more weeks. So he agreed to, to wait three weeks and do it. You can't, you can't have a root canal and then have a major surgery like that induce infection. So anyway, long story short, got it done January 30th. So yesterday was a two week mark, had to, you know, like 20 something staples pulled out of my knee. I got ice packs on top and bottom of my right knee now. So it's coming along, but it is slow and it's pretty rough, especially when the rehab lady comes over and tries to bend it uh, more than it wants to go. And you're literally screaming like a little boy. So yeah, it's tough. Especially for somebody, I know you're going crazy because. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, as active as you are, you play golf, you know, as many times a week as, as, uh, 
your lovely wife will allow. And then you like to hunt and you like to fish and you like to ski and you like to. Oh, yeah. You just want to be outside doing something. I know it's got to be driving you crazy. Oh, I'm looking out the window now and my golf net blew over. It is windy, but it's like 60 something degrees and I should be out getting nine holes in at least tonight with my son. But nope, I'm I'm on ice duty at ice it and then get on the machine. I got to get on that machine three times a day for two hours, try and get up to 80, 80 degrees and then 90, then 100, then 110. Yeah, yeah, it'll wear you out, but got to do it. Yeah, I mean, I had um, ACL reconstruction on both knees and three scopes, and they don't—they <laughs> sound pretty easy compared to what you described. Yeah, this is this is rough, and you know, I've been on pain meds for two weeks. I'm trying to ease off of them, uh, and I think I built up a tolerance because last week they didn't act like they were helping at all. I had the worst week of sleep in my life. Uh, and when it hurts and the pain pills aren't cutting, you just get a couple bags of ice and throw it on there and turn on YouTube and watch hunting or fishing or some poker tournament till you fall asleep. And then you wake up with the ice belt, ice bag melting, <laughs> ice water running down your butt crack. And you're like, whoa, what's going on? That'll wake you up. Well, let's, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about your uh, career. You played 14 years professional baseball, um, signed by the Cubs, played for quite a few different organizations. Made the big leagues in, was it 92 row or 88? 88. Yeah. Made yeah. the big leagues in 88. Um, played with some uh, pretty amazing guys in the in Chicago Cubs organization. I was thinking about it today. I was like, did you play with Andre Dawson too? Oh, yeah. So yeah. you played with three Hall of Famers on the Cubs. How about Lee Smith? Uh, in 1988, uh, he was not on the team. 87 he was, and I got called up to uh, – uh, big league camp to like catch bullpen. So I warmed him up is about it. And it's true. They literally go in there about the sixth inning and wake him up and then, Hey Lee, warm up and go in pitch an inning. So he did that. But in 88, when I got called up September, uh, uh, Yankee closer, Goose Gossage was our closer. It was amazing playing with Lou. I mean, playing with him for just a month, but Goose, he was something else, man. He didn't have the stuff that he used to, but he was still, Goose freaking gossage, I'll tell you that. He could get you out just by intimidating you. <laughs> he could. He could, yeah, yeah. I mean, so you play with <clears throat> Sandberg, you play with uh, Greg Maddox, Goose Gossage, a um, little bit of Andre Dawson spring training. And so, I mean, that's four Hall of Famers. I play with Barry Larkin with the Cincinnati Reds, Frank Thomas and Bo Jackson with the White Sox. Uh, play with some good players with the Brewers for a little bit, but th- those guys, those Hall of Famers, they're not just great ball players. They're, the guys I know that I play with, they're just great individuals. Andre Dawson, such a professional. You talk about ice. He lived in ice before batting practice. After bat, it was in a hot tub. Then after batting practice, ice. Then before the game, hot tub. Then after the game, ice. And I don't mean a little bag. I mean both of his legs were in giant sleeves of ice that that squeeze it and then the water goes out and squeeze ice water. I mean, and why he'd do it, he'd sign autographs. He signed every one of his autographs. If you ever seen Andre Dawson autograph, it's spectacular. It looks so perfect. It's like a stamp, but he, he would hold the card upside down and he'd signed it left-handed. So I don't know if you can picture that. I'm like, Hawk, why are you doing that? He goes, well, when I was a kid, there are no left-handed desks. So I learned I had to write over on this side. And the only way I could do it was to write upside down, but it's, it's, Penmanship was spectacular, but 
but uh, Ryan Sandberg, who's battling uh, cancer right now, I wish him well. Uh, just heard about that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he called or one of his PR guys called and asked me to get uh, down to Chicago in late June. And they're, they have a big statue that they're going to unveil. So I haven't seen him and I haven't seen him personally probably since 1990 when I got sent down. But we stay in touch. We text or call once or twice a year. But I've been keeping up with his uh, battle with prostate cancer right now. He's doing very well from what I hear. He's had a couple rounds of chemo. He's very positive. But he was a great guy. Andre Dawson was a great guy. Greg Maddox, he's a little different. He's a little different. But he was a spectacular pitcher. He was unbelievable. And uh, Barry Larkin was the, the, one of the best athletes and, and best teammates I ever had. He and Ryan Sandberg were just amazing guys to be around and, and talk with on a daily basis. And they didn't make you feel like you're a rookie or you're a third-string catcher like I was. They made me feel part of the team. And uh, when I got a guy over, got a bunt down or a bloop single, whatever it was, they'd give you a high five and, and you know, encourage me to play great defense, tell me about the umpires. Because a lot of time it wasn't just the strike zone. Is this, this umpire has this strike zone. This umpire likes this. You can get away with this. Don't do this with this guy. They, they had the umpires and the crews memorized. And it was, it was a great thrill playing with those type of players. And, of course, I played – I got up with the – Rangers, my very last season, 1998, Pudge got hurt for like a week. Not not bad enough to put on the 15-day DL. So I got called up for seven days. Didn't even get an inning in, so it won't show that I played for the Rangers. But I was up there for a minute, and uh, then he came back. But And Bill Hasselman was the backup. Of course, when you're the backup to Pudge, you never catch. So Bill Hasselman probably hadn't played months. So he, he played seven days in a row, and so I didn't even sniff. But uh, then I got sent down at the end of that little blip and uh, into the 98 season. I was in Oklahoma City in AAA, and I retired. Okay, so I played with Nolan Ryan, Pudge, Larry Walker, uh, Todd Helton, and Pedro. Those are the five Hall of Famers that I played yeah, with. Those are such studs. Yeah. Um, you know, Roger Clemens I played with. It's not in the Hall of Fame. Obviously, Hall of Fame worthy. I believe Carlos Delgado. Um, should be in the Hall of Fame with his right. numbers. But yeah, you know, I was thinking about this today because I wanted to talk to you about this. Is Besides those guys just being exceptional baseball players and you know, just most of them great teammates, what do you think it is about those guys that made them as great as they were? Because they didn't work harder than we did for the most part. We all worked hard. Right. We all played baseball our whole life, but they just have something. Those guys yeah. are exceptional. They just right. can't teach. Yeah, it, it, their their work ethic was always there, but their focus, like Ryan Sandberg, you know, he could goof off with me, or he taught me to do a hot foot. And believe it or not, he he probably taught me because I was a rookie, and he knew I'd do it, and I'd get in trouble, and he could just laugh at me. So he taught me how to do an excellent hot foot, and there's an art to that. But uh, Andre Dawson and uh, even Mark Grace played with him, exceptional hitter. Uh, their focus, each and every bat, they didn't give at-bats away, uh, whether it was the first inning or ninth inning in a blowout. Their focus was there. Their pregame prep was there. Uh, the guys I'm talking about, they took care of their bodies. Did they have a few beers here and there? Yeah, but they they weren't drunks. Uh, they weren't womanizers, you know, because every team has a guy that's probably out there chasing it a little bit. These guys were were family men. And uh, great fathers that I saw and just exceptional teammates. But, yeah, their focus, 
and their ability to zone in and, and come in and, and do well in the clutch moments, it was it was amazing. I mean, I could get some hits here and there, but you know, bottom of the ninth against Bruce Suter, and you adjust your whole swing to learn to hit that splitter and try to hit the the bottom half of the ball and maybe get it in the air because blown out at Wrigley when he hit when the Ryan Sandberg game where he hit those two home runs in relief off of Bruce Suter. I mean, that put him on the map. Yeah. I watch that on YouTube once a year. It's just incredible. But their focus and their ability to make small adjustments in the heat of, of the battle is what's most impressive. Yeah, and those adjustments aren't uh, game to game. They're pitch to pitch. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, you know, you, you notice it's – Guys, ball the ball might be moving more one day than it did the last time he faced a guy, and you have to make an adjustment on the fly. You don't have time to think about it and you know try and recalibrate everything. You got to you got to adjust on the fly. And you know one of the things I noticed about the guys that I mentioned, and I know the ones that you mentioned as well, is they have like this supreme confidence in themselves. They believe in themselves even when they're scuffling. They believe in themselves, which all professional athletes that are. Right. If you become a professional athlete, you have to believe in yourself because it's not easy. And these guys, um, you know, have short memories. If you get, you know, the bad stuff, because you can't let that affect what you're going to do. Your next at bat or your next batter you have to face. And I was funny. I was thinking about that yesterday about these guys, like, because I see a lot of the stuff that I talk about on social media is, it's almost like people are trying to t- convince people that if you do these things, you can be great. And it's not that easy. It's not that easy. A lot of it's like if professional athletes can't just copy these guys and be great, how's a 10-year-old or 12-year-old kid going to do it? So I think right. it's, it's a big joke that everybody acts like if you do these training regimens, you'll be great. Well, you still have to hit the ball. I don't care about the water bag you're sloshing around in the weight room. You still have to be able to make contact with the ball consistently. Well, that's what part of your – social media is these guys are not making adjustments very high high amount of these guys are going at bat to at bat and they're doing one thing and one thing only trying to hit a ball out of the park and i've seen sandberg win a lot of games and barry larkin too by looking he knows he's going to get a pitch middle away hit a single to right and steal second both those guys could do that and you know they don't steal bases like they used to but and it's not that part of a game. It's hit home runs and strike everybody out. But those guys would get on base. There was value in getting on base, uh, just like Barry Bonds. He would take every walk. You know, his dad taught him the value of getting on base. Let your teammate. You can't always do it. If they're not going to pitch you, take your base. Be a good base runner. Be, take pride in that and then score runs. Yeah, and it, and it was – I think a lot more focus back in, when we played was on the team. It was, you know, our job that day was to win the game. And it didn't matter if you went 0 for 4 or 4 for 4. Um, If you went 4 for 4 and you lost, that was a failure. You know, 0 for 4 and your team wins, you're supposed to be happy. And you have to be a little bit selfish as as a baseball player. Of course, you want to do well because you feel like you contributed to the win. Um, And, you know, if you're back in your hotel room and we lost a tough one and you had four hits, you feel a little bit better than if you went 0 for 4 with three strikeouts. Yeah, no doubt. Part of it. it. But it's about winning that game that night and doing anything you can do um, to contribute, whether it's breaking up a double play, whether it's taking an extra base, sack bunt, sack fly, turning the key double play, throwing a guy out. Every little thing helps your team win. And when you win, that's the ultimate goal as a professional athlete. 
No doubt. That's why I took such great pride in my defense. If I just block a ball in the first inning and keep a runner at first base, then I keep the double play in order, you know. And for Greg Maddox, that's huge. For Rick Sutcliffe, that was huge. That's why I got to play. Joe Girardi and I were rookie catchers in 89, and we actually uh, had a lot to do with us, you know, competing and winning the National League East, but we split time. And a couple of those pitchers like thrown to me and a couple of them like thrown to Joe. Joe was an excellent receiver and uh, a catcher as well, had an incredible career. But a couple of them like thrown to me because they knew I was not worried about if I went 0 for 3. I I spent my whole career going 0 for 3 or 1 for 4. 1 for 4 is a hell of a day for me, especially if I only had one punch out. But I tried to go get one hit, one walk, one bunt, and go 1 for 2 or 1 for 3. That's how my average jumped. My average didn't jump by going three for four very many times. I did it, but not many times, but just going one for, but instead of one for four, one for five, getting a little one for two or one for three, that's how I protected my average. But yeah, I took great pride in my defense and throwing guys out and calling a good game and blocking the ball, which, you know, you have trouble watching hitters these days. I have trouble watching catchers on TV. I know they're they're taught and they're trained and they're made to get on one knee in certain situations, but late in the game, winning run on third, you're not going to get both knees off the ground when you know a slider away is coming. It's 0-2. He's probably going to bounce it. You're still on one knee flagging at it, and it goes back to the screen, and the game's tied. Or I even saw a game you lo- they lost. This is a major league. This isn't high school or college. This is a major league. And why are they doing that? Oh, maybe they can fool the umpire on a few low strikes. I mean, get in a more athletic position. You know, anticipate where the ball's going. Beat the ball to the spot. You don't have to start the thumb on the ground and come up a, and catch everything wacky and weird. Now, there's a there's a talent to that. It's the new way of the game. I get it. New age. I'm old school. Johnny Bench did it one way. Yogi Bear did it one day. My dad was a pro catcher back in the day. I don't even think they squatted. I mean, he was back there in probably that half squat. Hey, hum baby, hum baby, with the old donut mitt. But things change. I get it. But Blocking a ball should never change. That's important. Keeping a runner at whatever base he is, first, second, or third especially, that should still be highly valued uh, play, but it doesn't seem to be sometimes. Well, I hear people saying that, uh, and I actually just heard it last week, this guy who's a pretty well-known catching guy, I won't mention his name, mentioned that uh, he actually thinks it's easier to throw from a one-knee stance. And I'm just shaking my head, and I was like, how can that be? You know, there may be a few guys like Benito Santiago when I was playing or a couple of other guys. I had a good arm, not a great arm. I had a quick release, and I was accurate. And that's why in the minor leagues I typically threw out close to 50% of the runners. I also had a manager that was an ex-catcher that uh, forced our pitchers to throw over and hold the ball and mix it up, and he called pitch outs. If we were way ahead in the count, he'd let me call a pitch out. So all those things contribute. And, you know, I don't think they focus on a lot of that anymore. But uh, if you get on one knee and you get a certain pitch and you have a cannon, yeah, just boom, boom. You might be able to do it on a few occasions. But trust me, overall, every pitch, every at-bat throughout the season, you can't throw better. Pitch down and in to a right-hander, you know, as a catcher, Pitch down and in, that is so hard to throw a runner out because you got to get it from way down by your left foot, get it above your right ear and throw out. But if somebody throws a, a slider away or a fastball, a meatball up and away, yeah, that pitch is pretty easy to throw. Uh, I did it in the minor leagues a couple times, and both times I did it, my manager chewed me out. 
And, and I didn't do it to hot dog. It just where I was set up and where the pitch took me, I just, and there was no left-handed hitters, right? It just was easy for me to catch and, and throw. And I got a couple guys, but I didn't ever do it on purpose to hot dog. I think Benito Santiago did because he could, and he was excellent at it. He had a rifle. He had huge hands. But and uh, see, and I, I mean, I can understand <clears throat> some guy. you know, the major leaguers are the best players in the world. So the pitchers generally have a pretty good idea where they're going to throw the ball, where they're going to pitch the ball. But when I've seen it in the youth levels, little league, little select ball when kids are young, the pitcher doesn't know where the ball's going. No, and it's just it's just like a track meet back and forth to the backstop, and yep. to me, at the younger ages, they need to teach the basic fundamentals of blocking and throwing and everything like you learned when you were growing up. Like I learned, I caught when I was in little league because our best pitcher was a catcher, so the only one who could catch him was me. So I volunteered <laughs> to catch, right? And I didn't love it. I didn't like the foul balls getting hit off me and stuff, but. You know, just basic fundamentals. And then as they advance college, minor leagues, whatever, they want to specialize that stuff. But I think it's it's so wrong to be teaching the, the 10- and 12-year-old kids how to catch on a knee. They're just lazy. They're sitting back there resting. Yeah, I do a lot of private lessons, as you know, or at least once a week, I should say, in a couple catching clinics. And we cover that. I said, hey, I'm going to teach you to do it old school because I can get any monkey off the street to sit on one knee and slap balls around the yard and just wave your glove and anything you catch, bring it to middle, middle. That's not an art form. That's not, but you're going to go to high school and a couple of kids are going to go to college. Let's work on some one knee down stuff. Let me explain it to you. Hopefully you can have your left knee down majority of the time because that gets your left knee out of the way, frees up your left elbow and your glove. And, but let's just do this with runners with nobody on base. But as soon as there's two strikes on the hitter, you know, nobody on base, two strikes. Okay, that's a drop third strike situation. You can be up on two knees, on two feet, I should say. So we cover that because I want to expose them, and I don't want to be the the old curmudgeon guys that doesn't want to know what's going on. So I still teach it, but I teach it and explain it. And hopefully their high school coach and their JUCO coach or college coach will know that there's value in, in catching from one knee with nobody on base and when runner's on base get up in a secondary position that's athletic to block the ball, to throw, to catch, to receive, all of that. Hey, Jeff, I got a question for Rick. Okay. Rick, with uh, kind of expounding on the one knee, I've got a, my son's a catcher, um, and he's at that intermediate age right now, the teenage age. So we've been total two, two feet behind the dish. He'll go down on one knee on a particular pitch, but through his own flexibility to get a little bit lower. Um, he, he prides himself on blocking balls, got two, two parts. One, do you feel that gives confidence to the pitcher? If you're able to block those balls that they can throw anything that they want. And, and two, the other part of stealing strikes that ground up to where guys are snatching strikes. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, there's no doubt with my career minor league average, the only reason why I ever got a chance to play in the big leagues, because I was so sound defensively. And, uh, and then once I got to the big leagues, you know, Greg Maddox personally asked, hey, I want Rona to catch me. Yeah, because I, I could receive. And, you know, to catch Maddox, you didn't have to work too hard. You just had to set up properly and catch the ball with minimal movement, uh, like we were talking before the show, like Charlie O'Brien did. Another Tulsa guy went to the same high school I did four years ahead of me. Actually went to Wichita State, too. But uh, he was a craftsman behind the plate with the glove. 
He caught seven Cy Young Award. All those guys that won Cy Youngs that year pitching to Charlie, they pitched only to Charlie because they wanted him back there. He could receive the ball, build a rapport with the umpire, and get strikes called. And when you got a guy like Maddox on the mound, first of all, the umpires are so excited. They know it's going to be an hour and 52-minute game, probably 94 pitches. And they're getting, you know, umpires, kind of like big leaguers, when they go out on on the town, a lot of places, they get it eat for free. So they're like, let's go have a couple beers and eat for free. Maddox is pitching. We'll be out of here at 930, you know, instead of this 1 a.m. crap. So, yeah, being able to to beat the ball to spot, present some of those borderline pitches as strikes, but make it look good to where that my manager doesn't know, their manager doesn't know. All they know is the, the batter's mad because I made the pitch look so good. Nobody can tell. The, the batter may know. Of course, you know when you're facing Maddox, you're going to get four inches on the outside corner and a couple inches on the inside corner, but you still got to catch and present it and make it look, boom, just stick it right there, make it look like a strike. And as far as catching the low pitch, that's the whole reason they started this stuff. I can't remember if it was six or seven years ago, but I saw some uh, big catcher for the New York Mets that was ranked like 30th in the league on catching strikes. He was a big dude, not very flexible. And he went from last one year to going down on one knee the next year and getting, uh, I don't know if he was first, but he was in the top five in, in uh, receiving, however they grade that. And because he did on one knee. Well, I was flexible enough. I could, in a full squat, secondary position, runner on, I could sink my left elbow in front of my left knee, drop my shoulder, and I could still catch that sinker down and in and catch it to where it's not driving my mitt out of the zone. So I was taught to give a good target to help the pitcher. And that's what I teach these kids in high school and, you know, college. And, of course, little you give a good target. Help your pitcher out. Then when he's about to release the ball, you have a you know quarter of a second. You can drop your mitt a little bit to relax. So you get rid of that tension that you did build up by giving a good solid ta- target. Then you drop the mitt, and then you track that ball because you caught the kid before, and you beat the ball to the where it's going. And you catch it with a little – pressure coming into the plate, a little pressure. Now they're catching it with catching balls a foot outside and dragging it middle, middle, not everyone, but there's a few catchers that do that. And, and the youth catchers especially are doing that and being taught to do that and getting praised for doing that. And those umpires, you want to build a rapport with them. They don't like when I was, when I was catching, you weren't allowed to do it. The first game ever caught my professional career was an a ball. I'm catching Greg Maddox in 1985. I'm fresh out of college. I was in college about, Two weeks previous, now I'm catching Greg Maddox, who was not Greg Maddox yet, but he still threw a complete game one-hit shutout that night. I'll never forget. But I caught a pitch that was a couple inches outside, and I didn't I didn't move it. I just held it there. I just stuck it and held it because I thought it was a strike. And I throw it back there, and he calls timeout and takes off his mask and pretends to dust home plate. And he said, hey, listen here, Rook. I'll let you know when it's a freaking strike. You just catch the ball and throw it back. I said, okay, Blue. He goes, that's another thing. I told you the national anthem. My name was Dave. You call me Blue again, I'll run your ass out of here. I was like, uh, yes, sir. So I I got indoctrinated that really quick to get rid of that college rah rah stuff and become a pro. Which which you you know that's why you're in college. You go to a ball. You it takes you a couple years to to learn how to be a professional and learn that whole game. It's it's not college anymore. Yeah, my 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 issue with the. Uh... With the the stealing strike stuff is you're basically telling the umpire that we're trying to deceive you, yeah. Because and and these umpires now get graded, you know they they're calling pitches that are 
<clears throat> half an inch outside balls now. And those were all strikes when we played. And oh, my God. The huge difference I see today is the strike zone is now more vertical instead of horizontal because we would have a pitch on the black with a, a guy who's established, an established major leaguer, was a strike every time. Right. And now you see these umpires miss calling these pitches balls that barely don't touch the line on that little box they have on the TV. Uh, we don't know how accurate that is. But it's like these guys are so precise that those pitches were strikes. And I just don't yeah, understand why major leaguers can't hit 250 uh, as a league with a strike zone like that. Because uh, those cybermetric guys are telling them, I don't care if you strike out. Strikeout's the same as a line out, same as a, and it's better than a ground ball double play, which I get that. But strikeout, put the ball in play, like Tony Gwynn, like Wade Boggs, like Barry Larkin and Ryan Sandberg, Hall of Famers. There was value in putting the ball in play and moving runners over. And now it's all about the long ball. And that's, I mean, do you think this, eventually with, with Rob Manfred as our commissioner, we're going to have a robot strike zone. I mean, it's common. If they, if they can perfect whatever technology they need to get the robo strike zone, kind of like they do in tennis with the whatever system they use, Cyclops or something in tennis. Right. Once they get that, what's going to be the value of catching on one knee anymore, stealing strikes? Well, that's, I heard it won't be. I was talking to Tori Lavello, the Diamondback manager, and he, he doesn't like that either. He's old school like us. What a great dude he is. But uh, there's, there, you know, studies are saying that if if we just get two or three strikes a game, there's value in it. I said, yeah, but you'd let a couple balls get by. He goes, I know, I know. I'm just saying they're four. That's out of my hands. I'm not allowed to make that call. They're they're making them do that. He goes, it will not change until we get the robo strike zone. Once we get a robo strike zone, then guys will get back up to two feet and they'll just block balls and and go you know regular. I'm sure by that time, catchers probably won't even want to do it anymore. They, they, I mean, who doesn't like sitting on one knee and just chilling out back there? It's not easy to squat, you know, like Pudge would do 150-something games a year in high-intensity moments with runners on base, catching Nolan Ryan or all those other great pitchers the Rangers had back in the day. They're bouncing slurred balls, curve balls, and spit balls. I mean, it's, it's nerve-wracking. Yeah, no doubt. You can just sit back there in a rocking chair catching some guys. But, uh, yeah, the robo-steal, the robo-deal. I saw on Instagram the other day a pitcher throws a strike and he's fussing about it and he touches the top of his head, and the catcher's like, no, no, no. Well, it's too late. The umpire saw him, looked up behind him, touched the top of his head for review, and because the, the, the catcher knew it wasn't a strike. So he's like, hey, don't, don't waste a challenge. Well, the pitcher thought it was a strike. The catcher probably made it look really good, but he knew it truly was a ball. Anyway, it, they went up top, and it was, it was a ball. So they wasted a, an appeal, or I don't know how many you get. But uh, it was interesting seeing how that took place. Never seen that before. We're not going to have that in the major leagues, are we? Oh, I hope not. I mean, I don't understand why we're trying to eliminate every part of the human element of the game. You know, baseball. I can see maybe when Angel Hernandez is scheduled to be behind the plate, we can have a robo umpire that game. But other than that, the other guys aren't bad. No, and. Yeah, and I feel bad for the umpires, man. They kind of got the shaft. Manfred brings in the pitch clock, and these umpires are having to enforce these rules that they don't want to enforce, and they're just 
knowing that their days are numbered, the robo strike zones coming. It's like these guys are just getting the shaft left and right. I know back when we played, you know, the, the strike zone was a lot wider. And I mean, you could, you'd see a pitch come inside and, you know, you kind of get out of the way and you're looking straight down and you see two inches between the black of the plate and the baseball, you know, it's a ball, but it's, it's one or two inches. You, you don't even argue. Cause that's just, it's like a given. Now when it, like the pitches I hated call when they were four or five inches outside or, or three or four inches inside. I mean, I did a good job by not swinging at that. I should be rewarded, but some pitchers still got those calls and they were veterans, Cy Young, Tom Glavin type player type pitchers, Greg Maddox type pitchers. Yeah, if you're lucky, you forget that about it. Yeah. Reminds me, uh, <clears throat> my old manager passed away not too long ago, Jimmy Williams, and we were in uh, Atlanta playing the Braves. I was with the Red Sox, and I'm hitting off Glavin. And I think Javi was catching, and he throws one of those, you know, three or four inches outside strike, and then up and in that was obviously up and in, and he brings it down, and he brings me up and calls me out. And I just turned around. It was Mark Hirschbeck. Right. And I said, Mark, I said, that's a ball. I said, but give our pitcher the same shit. And I walked back to the dugout. He took his mask off, and he's walking toward the dugout. And there's Jimmy Williams. He's always had his arms crossed. And he's yeah. like, huh? what would you say, Frito? I said, uh, I said, give our pitcher the same shit, Jimmy. He goes, oh, you better be swinging the bat. <laughs> <laughs> And I struck out like three times looking that game because they were just he was ringing me up. If he if, if he caught it in the air, it was a strike. Oh man! And yeah. those guys, you know, you piss those guys off, man. They are gonna get you. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially the Hirschbeck. Hirschbeck. So, Rob, I want to I want to uh, talk a little bit about your family because I know that uh, you, know, you have a lot of family members that played professional baseball were great athletes and. Can you tell us a little bit about who all played at a high level in your family? Yeah, sure. My dad, uh, the reason why we live in Tulsa, my dad played minor league baseball for the old Tulsa Oilers in the late 40s. And I think 1951, maybe part of 52. Anyway, uh, so in the off season, instead of moving back to outside of Chicago where they grew up, uh, he stayed in town and they lived at the National Guard Armory right on the fairgrounds with you might even remember was just around the corner from the minor league ballpark anyway. So they had free rent for, uh, stayed there. And back in those days, players would stay in double A and triple A, you know, two, three years, not, you know, one and done here. If you don't keep moving up maybe two years in double A, then they release him. But he, he played like parts of four seasons, I believe for the, the Tulsa Oilers and, uh, in off season, uh, stayed here and raised a family. So I've, three older sisters and two older brothers. So like I said, dad caught double A. That was the highest he got. He was one of those uh, great hitters, really good hitters. That was a decent catcher and could DH and play a little first base. He was at, you know, six one two twenty type guy. Mm-hmm. And so when I came along, my older brother, Ron, uh, played at university of Tulsa, played pro ball six and a half, seven years with the Milwaukee Brewers had excellent numbers in the minor leagues uh, as a relief pitcher. And uh, he was a great athlete, all-state in football, baseball, basketball, and uh, went to University of Tulsa to play quarterback and uh, to play baseball. But then his first year there, they started running the ball, and they're like, hey, man, we're going 
we're make linebacker or tight end out of you. And he's like, Hey Hoss, how many linebackers can throw the ball 75 yards on a dime? I'm out of here. So we played baseball. Uh, he's a great dude. He's uh, lives not too far outside of Tulsa. We play golf once a week uh, together. Ron, he's 71 years old. And then Billy, uh, is older than me. He's three years older than me. He went to University of Tulsa for a year, and then they folded the program, and he went to Miami, Florida, and he went to College World Series twice. They won it once in 1982. That was the first major national championship that the University of Miami had won. They may have won one in swimming or diving or volleyball, but they hadn't won one in you know football yet. So that was pretty cool. That was 1982. They actually beat Wichita State Wheat Shockers in 1982, and I was a senior in high school. But Miami didn't recruit me, and Wichita State did, so I went to Wichita State. But Billy also uh, got drafted and in the 10th round and played uh, six and a half years with the Padres organization. Uh, and then he was, became a minor free agent in 1990, and he signed with the Iowa Cubs. And I happened to be in the big leagues for a month or two. Then I got sent down to Iowa, and he and I played together. That was his last year. So that was uh, – you know, I always looked up to my – older brother and uh, still one of my idols, just a great middle infielder, great nose for the game. He and I we used to coach teams together and it was, it was almost unfair. Uh, if you were better than us, we were still going to beat you by a run or two because defense and bunting and, you know, small ball, but uh, it, it was just so much fun playing with him. So yeah, my dad and two older brothers played uh, pro baseball. My three sisters uh, were into horses and 4-H when they were young girls growing up and then they got married and all had nice careers and uh, everybody's still alive. So I'm the baby of six and uh, just turned 60 in December. Wow. Wow. That's cool. I, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I want to talk about when we first met in Tulsa and first I want you to talk about how, why you were in Tulsa in the first place at that time. Okay. This is 1991 about two months into the season uh, for the Tulsa Drillers. Yeah, I went to uh, – so after getting sent down, like I just mentioned in 1990, uh, nobody picked me off off waivers. So at the end of the season, I became a free agent. But, I, you know, I was a, a big leaguer. I had a year and a half or so in the big leagues, but I wasn't uh, an offensive threat. I was a good defensive catcher. So – Nobody just, you know, signed me to a major league contract. I had a couple people say, hey, we want you to come to big league camp. Uh, we'll be here four, five, six weeks, and you'll go to AAA, and then, you you know, you'll be the first to get called up if, if our first two guys, one of them gets hurt. And I, so I signed with the Brewers in 1991. So I go to spring training with the Brewers, and for some reason, when I got there, my arm was just dead. It didn't hurt. It wasn't painful. But everything just came out like a – change up. It was just, I had no zip on the ball. And BJ Surhoff was the number one catcher. They had a couple of other guys. Uh, 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 what was that Australian kid? Nielsen. 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 Yeah. He was there, but he was going like double A. Uh, and uh, Rick Dempsey was there. So Rick Dempsey and I were there competing for the backup job for BJ Surhoff. And this sucker is like 45 years old. And he I always knew he was a character and just a little different, but that son of a gun could still play. He outplayed me like you would not believe. Now, granted, if my arm was healthy, it may have been a different story, but he was getting clutch hits and he was running the team because he's, you know, 
probably had 15 or 18 years in the big leagues. So I didn't stand much of a chance to beat him out of that job. So I got sent down to the minor, was going to get sent down to the minor leagues. Well, April 1st rolls around and they called me in the office and uh, Treble Horn said, Hey buddy, uh, hate to tell you this, this is no April fool's day joke. Well, uh, we got to release you. I thought he was going to send me down. I was okay with that. I was going to make decent money in, in Denver and AAA and, you know, fight back my career and keep it going, but they released me. So I came back to Tulsa, uh, kind of rehab my arm. By that, I mean, I just let it not do much. I, I painted for my older brother and, and kind of that is incredible rotator cuff when you're sanding and, you know, wax on, wax off exercise. I'm doing it right now uh, as I'm talking to you. Yeah, you build great muscles for your rotator cuff. Slowly but surely it came back. And so I asked uh, our, our manager there in Tulsa, I said, hey, Bobby, can I come out to the and catch bullpens and maybe throw batting practice till my arm gets in shape? And Bobby Jones said, yeah, man, not a problem, man. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I did that. And uh, my arm, you know, was starting to kind of sort of coming around. But at least I was throwing and he might might have let me take batting practice a few times. And I was in the bullpen catching guys and working on my craft. And lo and behold, Pudge Rodriguez gets hurt. He's there in 1991 before he got called up and uh, they said, Hey, Rona, get the ballpark early. So I go in there. I say, yeah, what's up? He goes, well, Pudge is hurt. Can't play. Needs to suit up tonight. And I'm like, okay, I got to think about this. He goes, well, call your agent. Let us know what you want to do. Cause if we don't call you up, we got to suit somebody up back up third baseman because the other backup catcher got hurt the night before. So they had nobody. And, uh, and they were going to call somebody up for the next day. And I called my agent. He's like, well, you don't want to go to double A. And I'm like, no, I don't. But I do want to play. And it's in my hometown. And, you know, I just, if this is the end of my career. It's the end of my career. At least I'll play for my hometown, kind of like my dad did. And it won't. He goes, well, whatever. You decide. And he kind of hung up with, and didn't help me out. So I told Jonesy, yeah, I'm in. Put me in. I said, I can't throw out the trash, but I'll, I'll block everything and call a good game and try and get some hits. So, yeah, I played like a month with you all, I believe. Yeah, so and I, I don't know why they decided, but, uh, <clears throat> you know, they made us roommates. And uh, we hit it off right away, and you were a really funny guy and just a lot of, you know, we both like to joke around and stuff. And Oh, yeah. You were probably a little bit – because you'd already been in the big leagues, and I was trying to soak in, be a sponge and get all this information. But so, Right, right. And I was scuffling at the time. You know, I was – I think at that time, probably a prospect and I was really having a rough time. And I remember we went to, uh, we're in Wichita and we're at the hotel and it's one of those atrium kind of hotels, Dave, that, uh, has the pool indoors and stuff. And it's after the game and we're down there. They have this like little area that's like a bunch of arcade video games and stuff. And we're down there playing wiffle ball and, I'm imitating Ruben Sierra and Juan Gonzalez and the Ranger stars at the time in the big leagues. And I'm hitting with a big leg kick and I'm just smashing the ball. And Rona's like exact words. I'll never forget. He goes, why don't you freaking hit like that in the game? And I just looked at him. I was like, yeah, why not? I mean, what do I have to lose? So I went, it, this wasn't me lobbing in like pickleball, right? No, this is real wiffle ball. We've got holes on half of it and the other half scuff. And I could throw a slider really hard that would break about eight feet, yeah. then throw sidearm and throw a rise ball and hold it, the holes down and throw this wicked drop ball. And no one, I strike like 20 guys out in a row in the neighborhood growing up or even in high school. And I'm throwing this and he's doing this Steve Garvey 
up and robo hitting leg kick, yakata, yakata, and he's hitting these piss rockets all over the. And I keep shagging the ball, and it's pissing me off. I can't get him out. And I finally, I was like, dude, hello, come on, you need to try that shit in the game. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, I went to the game the next day and uh, right into the game from hitting my normal kind of crouch down just with a stride, like Steve Garvey. With a leg kick like like Ruben Sierra, Juan Gonzalez, and I went one for four, but hit a home run foul. That was a bomb too. Yeah, and, and I was like, "Dang, that felt really good." I just had never really felt that much leverage, and I went from went from that point of the season to hitting. I think I was hitting about two thirty to hitting over three hundred, and a great season. Went to winter ball next year, three months in Oklahoma City, and then called up to the big leagues with this huge leg kick. But you didn't really know about that story. No, I didn't know that story until, what, three years ago, I think? Yeah, three or four, uh, four years ago. And I was in uh, Fort Myers filling right. in for Benji Gill, uh, coaching this 16U team in a perfect game event, of all things, and uh, playing this Sandlot team from Tulsa. And right. I asked the coach, I was like, hey, do you know Rick Rona? He's like, yeah, he coaches in our organization. I was like, oh, my yep. God, I need to reconnect with him. I don't know why, Ro, why we didn't – I, mean, I know life goes on. Well, I know why, because, you know, uh, I, the last time I played with you was 91, no cell phones. Then we played together, in, or I played against you in maybe 92 and 93 in AAA, right? Yeah. No cell phone. I didn't get my first cell phone till 95. So it's not, you know, I, and hell, I didn't, well, I did have a home, but I, I didn't give you my home number. And even if I did, you would have lost it. You were playing all over the world at that time. So, yeah, you just get out of touch. There's a hundred guys that, because of you, you're getting me in touch with Joe Hall and these guys. And because of this guy, I'm getting in touch with or even Will Clark. I never, I played with the 98 for a minute with the Rangers, but he and I text deer pictures and the hog picture stuff we're killing and grilling. He's, he's become a, you know, a phone friend of mine, so to speak. And he's invited me to hunt with him, but just guys that we played against in that era, you know, we didn't have cell phones in the early nineties. And so I'm pretty sure that's why, but three years ago, uh, this guy called me. He goes, "Hey, you know Jeff Fry?" I'm like, "Yeah." Well, we just coached against him. Yeah, their team, their team. We beat their team. I'm like, "You beat their team? You had like nine players, mm -hmm. and you guys had like 18 and were stacked. And somehow they beat you, and you're still pissed about it. And you should be. But anyway, he goes, "Yeah." I said, "You got his number?" He goes, "Yeah, I do got his number." And he sent me. Uh, he goes, "He's on this podcast." So I listened to this podcast, and you you retold that story how I did that, and. I never knew that. Now, once I heard the story, I faintly remember uh, saying that to you. And I remember playing wiffle ball with you, but I faintly remember mentioning that to you. But I, honest to God, did not know that was a career-changing, life-changing little moment that we had. And I think that's so cool. It is. I mean, who knows? I mean, if I had continued to hit 230 all year, being a 30th-round draft pick, I'd have probably got released at a double-A. First off, Oscar Acosta, the pitching coach, hated me. He didn't like <laughs> you either. Because um, we called him out on his BS, but I mean, if I'd have continued that year and struggled the whole year and hit two thirty, I'd have probably got released. So I mean, it made a huge difference. I didn't know that you didn't know that, but thank goodness no, I, I didn't know that team in Tulsa. Because yeah, look at the things that have happened in the last three years. You yeah, know, we reconnected. We've played golf. We've gone hunting. We've gone fishing. I've introduced you to Colonel Flowers and Colonel Donahue. Uh, we've got to go to Cody, Wyoming, you know, just yeah, so amazing. many things that we've gotten to do. Yeah. Um, you know, you, what you, you started getting a territory in Texas to go play golf. 
Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I'm now the stainless steel salesman in Dallas-Fort Worth area where, where Fry used to live. I know, I know, I know. And I was telling Dave, gotta, I was telling Dave before we got on here, I was like, Dave, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to take it up here in Maryland. Uh, there's not very people aren't really good with Southern hospitality, and and uh, it's really really cold. So I'm hoping that within the next year, year and a half, we start get out of here and move somewhere where it's a little bit warmer and I can do right. the things. I mean, I don't even have my golf clubs here in Maryland, bro. I play golf one time in three months. Oh my God. I used to play twice. Well, I still, uh, I still got Darren Oliver's cell number. So when he took us to Va- Vaquero, so <laughs> I'll be getting him a call here in a couple months when my leg's good enough. Yeah, there you go. And, and so I want to talk a little bit more about Rose, uh, Rose hobbies. He's, uh, I would say expert bow hunter. How many people hunt with a recurve like you do, Ro? Uh, there's more and more these days. It's kind of becoming kind of cool to to go old school, but still, it's 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 very difficult. You got to practice a lot. Uh, whether it's a hog or a deer, they need to be a lot closer because the uh, the compounds bows of today. When I started 35 years ago shooting a compound bow, you know, 20 yards was still a very good shot. Uh, you still got to pull the bow back without the deer seeing it. You got to hold it. You got to aim. You got to release. And they were slower and noisier and the deer would duck. So you often missed high and you're like, man, how did I miss? Well, the deer heard it and they, they duck to run. They don't trip. They don't really see the arrow and jump the arrow as it's called or duck the arrow because they necessarily see it. They hear something and that's not natural and they duck and run. Well, I missed quite a few over of the year, but I probably killed, you know, a bunch too. I know I have in hogs, but about seven years ago, I got drawn in for a hunt in McAllister, Oklahoma, the ammunition depot. And you, you're only able to hunt if you shoot primitive archery equipment. So I bought a recurve and started shooting it. And uh, there's a lot of deer in the state and a couple places where I hunt and hogs and turkeys. And I got pretty good at, it. I practice in my backyard. You know, I got a chipping green going one way where I put chip and putt. And then I have an archery range going the other direction. My, I live in the city. It's only 40 yards long, but I shoot a lot of arrows. Got a tree stand up in the tree. Obviously, I've got great neighbors. They know I'm a redneck living in the city. But yeah, I, I like to go and do and be out in the woods or on the golf course or in a duck blind or waiting for hogs to come in or shooting stuff with thermal imaging at night with some buddies. And yeah, I, I love it. Love the outdoor lifestyle for sure. Not to mention the skiing. Do you snowboard too or just ski? No, I don't snowboard. I uh, I tried it once and it was a lot of work. And I know skiing, once you strap on, you're, you're done. You just get off the lift and boom, you're gone. And the snowboarders, you get off and you got to shuffle. And, and I have bad knees, you know, and you got one foot cockeyed and you're pushing like a skateboard. Then you, then you got to sit down and you got to buckle up and then you get up. I tried it one time and I was decent at it only because I rode a lot of skateboard when I was a kid in the, you know, in the mid seventies, which is fun. Uh, the first skateboard park in Oklahoma was just down the street from where I live. So we went down there. A couple of my buddies got really good, uh, but I was playing other sports. So I didn't devote a lot of time just goofing off a little bit, but it, not that it's like skateboarding, but it's similar to. And so I picked it up. There's a ski resort Northwest of Kansas city, Kansas. And we go up there called snow Creek and uh, man-made snow mostly, but a couple of times they'd have good snowstorm and we'd go up there and ski. And I mostly went up there to take my, my boys when they were, you know, like eight and three or the 10 and five. And my youngest one, especially when he's five years old, he took to it like 
nobody's business. Snowboarding, I'm talking about. So the boys and uh, my two sons and all my nephews, they all snowboard. And me and my two brothers, we ski. We're the old guys skiing. But uh, they can't they can't keep up with me. I mean, they're they can go faster, but on like a groomed uh, blue, it's got nice rollies. They they can't catch me. The, the skis are just a little bit faster. They just are. And I'm I let them eat. Now uh, there's a black. They'll beat me down a black because I can get going so fast that I literally cannot slow down and I'll hurt myself or worse yet hurt somebody else. So I don't. I, I'll ski blacks, but I don't go that fast. But the the the, the blues are my favorite runs because I go, I don't turn much. I think I'm Franz Klammer back in the 76, you know, Olympics or whenever that was. And I let those skis eat and I have so much time. So we go three times a year. We go once in December, once in January and once in uh, February. So I snuck in a trip December and the first week in January. Then I, then I had my knee surgery. So I only got two trips this year and they're going uh, in a week or two without me. Well, we got to get you healthy for our, trip to Cody, Wyoming. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. That was cool last year. I was glad to get, uh, get you on the list. And, uh, this year we got, uh, Colonel Flowers and Donahue and me and you do hopefully get a chance to do some fly fishing. And, uh, I haven't told you this. I told Flowers this, but, uh, I talked to Ryan Brown and, uh, he asked me and he goes, Hey, do you want to be in the celebrity cornhole? Uh, oh, you know I, I want to in on I that. Said, I said, yeah, I do. I said, but I can promise you Rick Rona wants to be in there, and I'm pretty sure Colonel oh, Powers yeah. wants to be in there. So all three of us will be in the celebrity cornhole competition. Yeah, we did that till midnight every night when we were in Cody. They had that nice little court. <laughs> we had to dodge a bunch of drunk kids. but <laughs> Yeah, that's a fun event. I can't wait. That's, it, that's just – you mentioned earlier about the uh, the social media aspect and really what, when I started doing this three or four years ago, there's so many people that I've reconnected with and a lot of people that I didn't even know just played against who I've become friends with. Mike Piazza, um, you know, I played against a guy, never really hardly talked to him. Now he well, There's a handful of guys that, there's a handful of guys that have messaged you and I read it. And then, then I direct message them like Matt Marullo. We played together in 1993. He was a catcher with the White Sox. The great left-handed hitter. Wow. He led the league in hitting. He started off the season batting about 150. And I wish I had another wiffle ball story to, to take credit for his success. But I was just his roommate and I kept his mind in the game. And But he was such a great hitter. Lo and behold, he ended up getting red hot batting like 362. He tore it up, won the batting title. And a couple of other guys that have started following me that I don't even know who they are, but they're friends of yours and ex-pros. So, no, it's been very fun. It really has. And and we've really, um, you know, Flowers and I decided three or four years ago, it's like, listen, man, we're, we're going to be around the people we want to be around. People were the same values, uh, the same interests, good quality people. And why do we want to spend time around anybody else? So exactly. we had the opportunity to do stuff, you know, with Skip Johnson and Aaron and we, um, you know, Colonel Donahue and Colonel Flowers and just like everybody I introduced. It, it was a bummer. I so wish you could have come with us to Remington Park and met Toby Keith because. Oh, I really regret that. Yeah, My, really my high school teammate, Danny Caldwell, um, you know, was in the horse racing business and his business partner is Toby Keith. And so he wanted me to come up there. 
and I know you had uh, to get ready for your hunt in McAllister, but uh, got to take uh, Colonel Donahue and Colonel Flowers up there with me to Remington Park. We got to talk to Coach Toby Keith for about a half an hour and told us how he he wrote, came up with that song, Don't Let the Old Man In. It was like really cool. And, but the coolest part is that when Toby passed away, Colonel Flowers called Danny Caldwell and now they're friends. And now they're going to go to hot springs in a couple of weeks and they're going to be hanging out together in the suite. Um, So that's, that's the coolest part I think of the social media stuff is how, just kind of connecting people. Now you're friends with Flowers and Donahue. You know, it's really cool how we're just kind of our our well, friends then, are becoming. Then when I was in Fort uh, Fort Worth with you, we went over to my high school graduate uh, buddy's house. He's a successful uh, marketing guy there in Fort Worth. We're swimming in his back pool, and one of his best friends is super good friends with Flowers. It was hilarious how this was all coming together. I know, I know, and it's just like all these people know each other, and sometimes. You know, you don't know it until somebody says somebody's name. And they're like, who, who flowers? I know flowers. Oh, wait a minute. You know, this guy, it's really cool. All that stuff's been happening. I, I you know, hopefully uh, I get back to the other side of the United States for too long. And we get back to oh, making yeah. more buddies and, and doing some fun stuff together. Yeah. We miss you, buddy. Big time. I missed you in Dallas, Fort Worth area. Last time I was up there making calls and then I know you just can't, drive four hours and get down here and play golf with us like you did a few times, but it'll happen. It'll happen. Yeah, it'll happen. Well, I, uh, I want to keep you any longer row. I know you've, uh, probably got some icing to do and some rehab and, um, but I, I do. And I apologize for not having you on sooner. I, because when I told Steffi that, uh, I ha- was having you on, I she goes, you haven't had him on before. I said, no, I can't believe I, I guess I just thought I would have had you on by now, but I'm so thankful you were able to come on. No, spending the time with you over the last couple of years has been better than being on a podcast. But, you know, when you have Will Clark and uh, some of the guys you've had on, oh, my God, you've had some crushers on. So even my son's like, man, when's he going to have you on? I'm like, dude, I, I got I got a cup of coffee in a big league. He's got like Nomar Garcia Para and Will Clark. That's the caliber of of his podcast buddies. As long as I get to play golf with them and I don't have to give him any strokes, I'm good. <laughs> You're going to have to give me some strokes, buddy, because I don't, I don't even know if I know how to hold my golf clubs right now. But uh, I'm supposed to be coming back to Texas in the middle of March for a couple weeks, so uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to get together. I do appreciate you taking the time. Dave, thank you for uh, doing a great job as usual. you have any more any closing words for us, Dave? No, I tell you, Rick. He was. You were warm. Those guys were warming up your seat to bring you on. I thought this was a great podcast with all the yeah. stories you told. And you know, you should have been collecting royalties on that lake kick. I didn't know that's where it originated from either. From the atrium, where it was probably against the, the law to be playing wiffle ball in the atrium. You two were doing. You created a, a swing that that elevated Jeff to what a nine year MLB career. You know what's funny about that? Uh, and I, I not that I was a great hitter, but I'm a good hitting instructor because I know what not to do. And I played with some great players, Hall of Fame members that we mentioned, and I studied them. I just couldn't do what they could do. I didn't have the eyesight uh, and the, the bat quickness. So I teach a style of hitting like, like, like Jeff proposes, you know, keep it simple, you know, see the ball, get your foot down, put a good stroke on, hit line drive. So I teach that over and over. But the last thing I will ever teach a kid to do is a leg kick. <laughs> 
I just, I couldn't do it. And, you know, what provided for Jeff was rhythm and timing. And some people believe a little bit of power, but yeah, maybe on certain pitches, if you want to cheat and really get it, it works in slow pitch softball for me, but uh, against a 98 mile an hour fastball, no, I had to get my foot down. But more and more kids are, are asking me about it, wanting to tinker with it. Uh, not necessarily the uh, high level swing, but just getting that foot up and just ha- lightly hanging there and getting it down. And I said, I don't care. You want to get it up, you got to get it down. Just get it up and get it down. If it's ri- All it is is rhythm and timing. Don't let anybody kid you it's going to make you more power and more this. It's just rhythm and timing. And if it works, it works. Some kids it does, some kids it doesn't. Anyway, Jeff, hey, thanks, guys, man. I really appreciate you having me on. No, hang on. And Jeff, that was probably, you know, with all the stuff that you're involved with, with social and trying to help kids out and, and coaches out do the right thing and see through some of this garbage out there. That story I know was told and fun, but that's your point right there. You were out there having fun, enjoying the game, tinkering with things, and kids don't do that anymore. They're overcoached and undertaught. And I think that's a that probably exhibits your point more than anything. Yeah, and it was, uh, you know, it was just trial and error, everything. Yeah. It was always experimenting. I never tried to overthink it. It would just try something. If this didn't work, if I was getting under the ball, I knew I was dropping my elbow or dropping my shoulder and make a quick adjustment. And it just, that's just something that really gave me the confidence that I could get the the barrel of the bat to the ball quickly. If I got my foot down and then I had some leverage hitting against the firm front side. And I mean, I just did it. I tricked him as long as I could. Yeah. Well, Rick, (laughs) thanks for coming on the show. I mean, you were great. I know you're, you're, fighting through knee recovery and I want to see you get back up. Cause I remember seeing you on social media, knocking down a three from the, the right wing. I think it was in Wyoming on a dish by, by Jeff Fry. No, just the opposite. I did some uh, two seventy spin move pass to Frito and he knocked it down. Yeah. Oh, I must've missed a spin move. I yeah. thought I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do that next time, but hang on with us for a second. We're going to, as we close out, Jeff, thanks for another great show. Our 67,000 subscribers, we appreciate your support. Forgot to mention at the beginning, but the voting is closed. We were nominated for two Baseball Podcast of the Year awards with uh, Sports Podcast Group and the Webbies. I didn't make that that name up. That's real. Uh, we appreciate your support with that. Thanks to Millions for handling our marketing and stuff. You'll be able to pay to have Jeff Fry do st- uh, sponsorships, uh, messages. You can ask him baseball questions. Those experiences will all be up this week once we, we get that menu up there. And, and once again, Jeff, thanks so much for your support. And I'll let you close us out here with your your signature, She Gone. Okay. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for uh, everything. Uh, Ricky Rowe again. Love you, brother. And uh, I will uh, be in touch when I get back to Texas. Uh, good luck with the knee. Tell your lovely wife, say hello and your and your brothers and your boys. And uh, Will do. I appreciate it. Uh, This is Jeff Fry closing off the uh, She Gone podcast. She Gone!